21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. On this programme, we meet MP for South Cambridgeshire, Heidi Allen. Heidi believes that women should be more involved in politics and is actively trying to help make this happen. We meet Carly Millard, who is the manager of the new market branch of Ridgens, the Builders Merchants business. Carly has just been shortlisted in the Builders Merchants Journal Awards in the category of Independent Rising Star of the Year. She tells us what it's like to work in this male-dominated industry. And Louise Wilson chats to teenager Kira Gibson, who's on a mission to make prescriptions free for inhalers used by asthmatics. Kira talks about the problems faced by asthmatics, not only around the cost of inhalers, but the lack of understanding the public has about the illness. That's all coming up in this edition of 21st Century Women. Timber and builders merchants business Ridgens have been in the news recently because one of their branch managers, Lynn McGee, has been recognised for achieving excellent grades in her city and guilds qualifications. Her achievements were supported by an initiative that the business runs called the Edge Development Programme, which was introduced to the business in order to transform traditional styles of management and leadership. An element of the programme involved peer-to-peer coaching and mentoring. I met with one of the women involved in this mentoring programme, Carly Millard. Carly is the manager of the Newmarket branch of Ridgens. She was shortlisted in the Builders Merchants Awards in the category of Branch Manager of the Year last year and has fast-tracked her career through the organisation. Carly is working in what tends to be considered a fairly male-dominated industry, so we wanted to talk to her about her career choice. origins in the first place? Were you working for other builders merchants? It's something that you've done since you left the school? No, quite the opposite actually. Um, so about 10 years ago, 10 years is my anniversary this year for joining Bridgins, um, I relocated to Saffron Walden uh, with my then partner and now husband and um, basically uh, wanted to choose a new career path. Ridgins were va- uh, had a vacancy for a salesperson in their what was called the general sales office. So I applied, uh, having no previous history whatsoever in the industry, the trade or the product. So applied and was successful in in getting the role. Um, That was now 10 years ago. Had you done sales before then? Was that your background? Yeah, so leaving school, I've always been a bit of a talker, so I've always found interacting with people quite fun so sales was my natural choice in in life and um, so I started school I left and worked for various companies just selling things doing things like selling at the NEC in Birmingham um, and general office sales based as opposed to out on the road. So when you came into the um, business it is quite male dominated I'm kind of guessing most of your customers are male is it quite intimidating or was it quite intimidating when you started? I don't think so, no, because I'm, I'm quite an open person and, and I integrate with all people equally. Um, I was raised in a very male-dominated house, went up to watch Manchester United, played football myself, so, so actually I fitted in quite well. It can also be quite different, I suppose, from the positions I've held because I did feel growing into my career, you have to get the respect 
and at the trust a little bit more than than maybe what my male colleagues have but actually it didn't take long and soon as everyone realized that you know women um, and we are a force to be reckoned with in Ridgens had the knowledge and had the trust then we, we were treated as an equal um, and actually I've seen that growing a lot and I'm, I'm proud of our business and actually all, all of the colleagues I work with not just the female ones to be honest. So you started off in sales how did you make that jump to becoming a branch manager because I'm assuming that is quite a leap. Yes, um, it, it comes with a certain development plan. Weirdly enough, it took me getting some very creative and positive feedback in, a, in an annual review because I was quite lost. I felt I'd driven myself in sales and I wanted to challenge myself more and I wasn't really aware of which direction to go. So I had a very effective, constructive annual review. We sat and, and explored my options and, uh, and since then it's sort of gone from strength to strength. It takes a really good manager, doesn't it, to help someone else to spot the potential and put that idea into their head. Is that something that you find you're doing now to your staff? It's quite funny really because you do look back and you do think about the advice and, and the support you get and then actually how you bring it in. Yeah, I, I have. I've Some of the good practices that my past managers that I've worked with over the years, I do find myself adapting them a little bit to my own style and, and putting them into practice. So it's really good. And it can be a little bit frightening having been a manager myself because if you see somebody that's really, really good, you know that helping them move up means you're possibly going to lose them because they're going to go off to another branch to become the manager or they're going to be doing something else, you know, that, that will mean that you actually lose that very good member of staff. But it, you still have to do it, really, don't you? Do you know what? I'm, I'm one of these managers. I'm entirely not selfish. So I would actively encourage uh, driven, aspiring people to work with me so they can improve. Because I was one of those people, remember, that one of those days. And I'd rather help them get what they want than lose them. And they possibly go to a competitor where they become my enemy. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, I really do enjoy doing that now because, you know, I'm in a position in my career where I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm, I'm at a branch that I've got a lot of time for. The colleagues that work here I've got a lot of respect for. And actually, we've got a lot of positive uh, things going on in this branch where I'm really looking forward to seeing how that pays out and how my team can help me do that. So I'm very much in a happy place at the moment. And part of what I want to do in my role, other than the physical day-to-day parts of my job is actually look at how I can influence and lead someone to to go on and do some of the fantastic opportunities that I've been given because I think then I'm feeling like I'm helping someone else be really good and happy within their role and that's that's just what I want to do at the moment. So you've been branch manager here for two years at this branch what were the biggest challenges that you found when you came here first? My own personal little demon was coming back. Um, I was actually the assistant manager here and 70% of the colleagues uh, that were here were here when I came back. So it was the challenge for me was a bit of a personal one, really. It was really understanding I'm now the boss, not the assistant manager. So how that would change and how they would interact with me. Because that relationship from an assistant manager to manager does change somewhat because, you know, you're now the manager. And actually, um, I'm very proud to say that the individuals I have working in this branch welcomed me uh, with open arms. And all my fears that I did have, actually, they, they, they weren't fears at all in the end. And they've been so supportive. And, and 
I'm only the manager I am because I, God, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> I'm only the manager I am today because I've got some, you know, 27 individuals who genuinely care about what they do here. And it makes my job as a manager so easy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so easy. How much autonomy do you get as a branch manager? I think the one thing that I really love about this business, and I've never worked for another builder's merchant before, okay, so my, my knowledge on this industry is pretty pretty restricted to regions, so I can only be incredibly biased and give you feedback on what they do, but as a manager, you're empowered to and trusted to, to lead your business, so this, this branch at Newmarket is very much, uh, I'm trusted to class it as my own business to run it to staff it to do all the exciting changes and activities to be able to grow my own little business here and and actually I really actively think that's why I'm here 10 years later because whether I'm a manager or someone who works in the yard or a salesperson I think you're really given that trust to be able to be effective within your role but generally it's because if they see driven people they give you every chance to to succeed within your career and it's just such a lovely thing, really, to have that back in, because um, it's a very, you get that from your family, mm-hmm. um, you know, the support and the, the positive influence in your life, that journey to, to do good things. And actually, I get that from Ridgens too, so it's really nice to have that in my life. Are they a company that, that encourage women to work for them? Very much. I mean, I mean, maybe maybe not in senior roles at the moment. Um, obviously, our old MD used to be a woman. Uh, Anne Ridgen was an, and continues to be a strong influence behind the scenes. But we've got Amanda Ridgen, who's still very much part of the business. You know, there's a lot of women coming through, and and that's so inspirational for us younger, driven sort of women coming through the business to have those sort of people to look up to and respect within our organisation. And it's really nice, actually. And what's also really positive is, is obviously, not just in Ridgens, but outside of our, our business, there is a lot of respect for women in the merchant in industry. And I think that's a strong message this year. And, and that's really nice for me because that shows me hope and opportunity. You must have days that are bad and you must have days when you're dealing with really irate customers. Because, I, I mean, I've seen it when I've been in stores myself. You know, you get some grumpy person coming in and they're not happy with the service. How do you deal with that? I think that's when your empathy side has to come in and kick into play and understand that that's passion and that's their their emotion side because that's because they care and I think that's where you you need to just understand and listen and I think the key part to any manager uh, is to understand frustrations of your customers and to to listen appropriately and it always happens let's be honest no one's perfect but mistakes happen whether they're from us or for what have you but if you listen to your customers you get them the answers and the solutions they need in a time style that is suitable, then that that always goes a long way. And never lie, because, you, you know, you can get caught out. So as long as you're honest and as long as you understand and you sympathise and, and as long as you you are actively there to, to help them with a solution they need at the right time, then then I, I, I generally find that that helps. You were shortlisted as Manager of the Year last year. How did that feel? Proud, I guess, that my my company um, respected me enough to to put me forward. Uh, we've we've had a new ops director join us a couple of years ago, and um, uh, and I will say he's tra- changed the dynamic of our business, and he's. Um, He's really been a great support and actually guidance for me, not only for what I'm doing now, but for my future development. And he's really actively encouraged that uh, that I push myself, which sometimes is hard. But um, I think having him on board as well, he's helped 
me with with my drive but no definitely yeah it was it was a shock <laughs> and to get shortlisted to the final three and go and experience that day out in London with my colleagues um, and obviously seeing my colleagues and other departments win uh, uh, these awards as well I regrettably didn't win but it was I still won because I come in the top three the posh event in, in a hotel in London was it Yes, it was, so it was at the Hilton in London and it was an absolute fantastic day because I got to meet so many wonderful people from uh, competition uh, and competitors in my category, but they were really lovely people and actually every single one of them deserved to be there and um, the right person won on the day and here's, here's to every bit of success and possibly nominated this year, but do you know what, uh, it, was a, it was such a fun day and it was really nice to meet everyone. Can you see yourself ever doing any other job? 100% no. Really? I, I thoroughly <laughs> enjoy my job, even on the down days when you've got so much going on, because the job is very, you've got to be able to multitask. 100%. There is so well, there much you going are. on. That's definitely a woman's <laughs> job, then, isn't it? <laughs> you, you, you've definitely got to learn how to be able to put one thing down, half done, and pick it up maybe a day later. Um, it, it, do you know what? I love that about the job, though. I would get bored if you did the same thing every day. And I like the fact that no two days are the same. But I go home smiling and that's how I know I enjoy my job. It sounds like great fun, Carly. And good luck to you and any other women that want to go into this job. Thank you. And since recording this interview, Carly has been shortlisted in the Builders Merchants Journal Awards in the category of Independent Rising Star of the Year. The awards take place on the 18th of May and we wish her all the best. That was Carly Millard and she is presently the branch manager of Regions in Newmarket. And the music was Capital Cities, Safe and Sound. That was an interesting interview. Um, I actually went... You can probably hear by the sound effects in the, in the background. Yeah, it was good. That, um, I went down to the Regions store in Newmarket to meet Carly. And I noticed when I met her, she spoke to, to customers on the way past to make sure that they were being seen to correctly. There was somebody waiting at a, a counter and she made sure that they were all right on her way past. She spoke to all the staff that she passed as well. She made me a cup of tea in, in the kitchen and she spoke to somebody in there and you could just tell that they respected her. You could tell that they liked her. She's the kind of person I think you will work well for. A very, very good manager. Mm. Yeah. It, it's nice. It, it's the little things that matter, the, the little chat as you go past me, but particularly talking to the, the customers. That's really important, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. I think she'd be very, very good at her job. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting as a company that you would, you would kind of imagine it would be very male-dominated in there. Mm. Um, oh, yes. yes. I noticed a few blokes as well, but there's also quite a few women. And she's not the only woman manager either. I think there's another, another couple that I heard of. There's mm. maybe more managers of these stores doing really really well and she was responsible for one of them doing doing very well as i said at the beginning of mm. the of the interview so well done yeah, regions they're, i know they're, they're obviously quite happy to look at females which is good they are as you say in, in that particular sort of job it's pretty pretty male dominated yeah. i would think but yes. she did say you know as long as you can demonstrate that you know your stuff so she obviously has an interest and um you know she she's 
picked up what everything is for and what it's about. And that's a, that. it's about that as well, isn't it? It's yes, not it just, is. you know, yes. you've got to really understand what you're doing. Yeah. But no, I thought she was, uh, I thought she was very, very good. Yes. Mm. I was quite interested in the middle of that particular interview. You um, spoke to her about actually going, because she, at one stage she said that she went off to be an assistant manager somewhere and then she came back yeah. and became the manager. Yeah, she'd been the assistant manager in Newmarket. Yeah. Went Went away somewhere else and then was promoted as manager, manager. and came back to be the manager. And in the she market. knew, as she said, I think it was something like 70, 72, 73% of the people. So she knew them yeah. all. Yeah. And she'd worked with them more on their level. Yeah. So she was coming back as their boss. And that is tough. Very tough. It, it's not easy to do that. No. It, it's a, a change of mindset. Yeah. And somehow. But she obviously had the personality in order to be able to do that. Yeah. And I, as I say, I think people will respect her enough that it, it just mm. works. You know, it works. So good for her. Good in Ridgens. And as I said at the end of that interview, she has been just recently nominated by the Builders Merchants Journal Award in the category of Independent Rising Star of the Year. So everything crossed that she gets that this year. Yes, well done, Carly. Yeah, absolutely. This is 21st Century Women. What's it like being a female MP? From the upside of helping people to the downside of dealing with internet trolls. Linda Ness speaks to the MP for South Cambridgeshire, Heidi Allen, to find out and ask her what it's like being a woman in politics. Heidi Allen was elected as Conservative Member of Parliament for South Cambridgeshire in 2015 and re-elected during the snap election of 2017. Heidi has famously spoken out against the terms put in place around the Universal Credit Scheme and proposed cuts to tax credits. She was also one of the 11 Tory MPs who voted against the government for a vote to be held in Parliament for the final terms of the Brexit deal, which caused the Daily Mail to brand them self-consumed malcontents. So what's it like being a woman in the cut and thrust of politics? Heidi, you did a degree in astrophysics at the University College London. Was science something that's always fascinated you? Yes, and people do find it slightly confusing how on earth I've ended up with a career in politics when I started in science. But I was um, always just a very curious child and interested in why, why. Mm -hmm. And there was no bigger question of why than how did the universe get here. It was a pretty tough degree. I can't pretend it was easy. Um, But if I were to turn the clock back, I would still study the same again. Really interesting. Did you go on to work in that area when you left uh, university? Not in astrophysics or in science per se. And it's funny now when I, um, having, you know, chosen to apply to a, a constituency that is bursting with science that was one of my reasons for choosing South Cambridgeshire and um, I do find myself saying to girls you know the girls in particular don't be don't be wooed by the money and finance stick with science stick with science but that is ashamedly what I did at the time I remember my mum sent me when I was at uni she'd send me down food parcels and things and she sent me a cutout from the Sunday Times one week of um, banks looking for rocket scientists to work in derivatives um, so I actually worked for an investment bank, J.P. Morgan, two days a week during my third year wow. um, as a derivatives analyst because they wanted people who were good with statistics and, and playing around with, with numbers, essentially. And I got wooed, I'm afraid. So I um, I went into to banking briefly, but soon learnt the air of my ways and discovered that I like people too much, not numbers. <laughs> so then I worked in industry <laughs> instead. But yes, um, it, it particularly in this part of the world, science is so important. And what made you initially interested in politics? Why that switch? 
Um, well, it was very late. So unlike the majority of my colleagues in the House of Commons, I haven't wanted to be an MP my entire life, nor have I tried before. It was the Tottenham riots in 2011 that I just found myself watching the news night after night, almost mm-hmm. like watching my country as a war zone. And economically, we were in a, a, a terrible predicament as well. And it just felt like a call to arms. I'm the kind of person where if I see a messy room, I want to get stuck in and tidy it. And it felt like my country was in that position. And it just, I've got to do something. Yeah. So I had a glass of wine in my hand as well, which probably might have helped a little bit. But I thought I need to get involved. But it was very much like that at that time, actually. Mm-hmm. Everyone was glued to the television and open mouth we couldn't believe it was happening in London and it was spreading as well if you remember literally like wildfire to cities all around the country yes um I just my brain couldn't compute what I was seeing um you know why had people become so disenfranchised from society that it was okay to do that to to pillage shops to steal to attack the police um it was just a mess it was Um, and I wanted to do something do you think there's a capacity for that kind of thing to happen again um, I'd say anything's possible, and although you know, I'm sure listeners, like most good folk, get a bit turned off when people get a bit political, but I'd say certainly the very polar opposites that we see in politics now with Jeremy Corbyn at the extreme left and some of my head-banging right, right at the other end, on the Tory side, they are worlds that are polar apart and also instill real hatred and real um, you know, passionate dislike in the opposite so I'd say anything's possible. I, I hope not. Economically, I think people are um, we're, we're more stable than we were, and that was undoubtedly a trigger at the time. Um, mm. But, you know, we have to learn to compromise and, and live with each other and be more tolerant. Now, 208 women MPs were elected in the last general election, which equates to 32%, and that's a record high, um, apparently. Why do you think that women are still in such a minority in Parliament? I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, A, it's not a career that, for example, I knew anything about until, um, you know, as I say, I felt this call to arms. It didn't, you know, I didn't even used to vote sometimes, which is um, <laughs> absolutely the worst thing a woman can say. Women are good at, at just doing stuff and fixing stuff. There's a problem in their village, there's a problem on their street. You know, the family down the road need a hand with something. They don't necessarily get the connection between that and getting stuck in and politics. And we need to do a better job of explaining that, that when you care about your school and you decide to be a governor or you care about um, whether the school bus is on time or you care about how your family are being treated in the local hospital, that is politics. And actually, if you care about it, you can get involved to make it better. But I think some of the practical things as well, I mean, I, um, Phil and I, we don't have children, but goodness me, if your constituency is 250 miles away and you've got kiddies at home, just practically that's really hard to be... Because you have a very split life as an MP. You're in London during the week and at home at the weekends. And just um, from a logistical point of view, that is tough. Mm-hmm. I've noticed with working in radio and interviewing lots of people, it's lots of women that are the, the groundwork mm-hmm. in making things happen in the community. And I think that's really true. But, but they just don't and see the it. And the glory. <laughs> yes. You're right, they're usually running things. Absolutely, and you look at, I mean, not all by any means, and it's dangerous to make sweeping statements, but you look at a lot of councils and you look at the people on there. You know, women, we're the ones that manage the financial purse strings a lot of the time Mm -hmm. for a family or a household. And um, I think we are naturally, we just get on and do it and we don't seek the glory and we're not interested in the title. So perhaps it hasn't occurred to us that we should put ourselves out there. But I certainly, I'm really proud here locally in South Cam's that last year in my um, county elections and a district by-election, I got um, in a couple of young ladies, Lena Joseph and Ruth Betson, 
this year we've got some more new ladies standing for district council we've got um we've got heather i've got ruth standing again i've got linda i've got barbara i've got shabona i've got evelyn i've got a whole host um harriet mustn't forget harriet um of young um dynamic women coming through um but it's like all these things you lead by example isn't it if you see somebody that you think oh, i'm a bit like them yeah yeah i could do yeah. that and yeah. then you do you feel empowered to have a go yourself yeah no that's true but I guess the downside of what you're doing is um, there's abuse targeted at politicians and social media. So how would you advise the next generation of women contemplating to go into politics not to be put off by that? Because the criticism and the constant abuse must be horrible. It is. And um, I think, I mean, I've never um, scientifically done the data crunching, but it seems to be those that have reckoned that women have a tougher time of it than men. I think probably principally if you're a bully and you enjoy making somebody else's life miserable, you are going to pick on a perceived weaker person. And, you know, that is perceived perhaps to be women. So maybe we do get an unfair share. It isn't nice. You do have to develop a bit of a thick skin. So yesterday I was in Crown Court in Cambridge um, for a chap that sent threatening emails to me and my staff. And, you know, he appealed for magistrates and we ended up in the Crown Court. Um, I've had people arrested via the Met who've sent emails threatening to kill me. Um, In some ways, those you can separate out because they're clearly an individual who um, isn't well. The social media barrage is more difficult because that's quite often anonymous. These people often don't have pictures or names. Yep, that's right. Um, And they're keyboard warriors. They can sit there quite happily without having to um, reveal who they are. And then they can disappear again as quickly as they've arrived. You have to develop a thick skin but not so thick as you stop feeling and you stop, um, you know, even if I have a really bad day on Twitter and I've got flipping hundreds of trolls after me, I still, my husband thinks I'm mad, I still, even if it takes me a few days to get through it, trawl my notifications because there could be a constituent in there who actually needs my help with something. Yeah. And you'd, I learned to block. I block quite a lot. Block, mute, block, mute. Yeah. If you're going to mentally bring me down and make me less able to help people that need my help, and go away. I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be um, you have to be prepared for it. Um, I think the government are looking at what um, we can do to make social media platforms be tougher on hunting down people that abuse those platforms in that way. And maybe we need some legislation around that. But you know, you have to be a Duracell bunny. You top your batteries up with the good stuff and the people that you help and the thank you cards that you get and the and the uh, and the families that you help. And you keep those nice emails as well, and you keep them in a folder, and when you're having a really rubbish day, you look at them again, and that helps them. <laughs> that has a great way of dealing with yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I do. This is probably the most stupid question ever, but do you think that uh, the UK would be a better place if there were more women MPs? Absolutely, 100%, <laughs> but in every walk of life, because we need that balance, and it's our difference of approach, we're more collaborative, we're interested in results, um, we talk to each other, we share, we gossip, we get involved in the detail. In every industry, in every organisation, including um, Parliament, yes, we need that better balance because it makes for better decisions. Yeah, I've often said that. When women get together as a network, there is nothing more powerful than that, actually. They are really something to be up against. Absolutely. You know, and we see that. Totally. We see that. You know, there's one campaign that's been running for some time now, the Waspy Women Mm -hmm. around the state pension um, changes. It's it's of interest to us. But, But it shows how, you know, women who weren't you know trained in in law or um parliamentary procedure but my goodness me they're getting the message across and they're not letting go mm-hmm. um, and i think women adapt and learn and uh, develop their approach they're more responsive i think to the environment and if that approach isn't working right will change 
And what would you say to other women who fancy going into politics? You know, I've learnt, I, I came to this relatively late in life. What I've discovered is you don't, in absolute, you shouldn't be, I think, an expert on every subject. Um, you know, one minute it's NHS, then it's defence, and then it's teaching budgets, whatever so you it might be. you couldn't be an expert in no, your subject, absolutely. could you? Um, and some MPs try and pretend that they are, I think, and which is um, the biggest mistake. Don't think that you have to be an expert. Don't think you have to have certain qualifications or certain educational background. You absolutely don't. You just have to be a dog after a bone, passionate, good at listening, really good at listening. And um, my greatest skill, I think, is what I call my black book technique. I gather experts around me. Oh, I must remember Bobby. He was really, yeah, he's he's a good GP. He knows about that. Mm. Um, And that's one of the most rewarding parts of the job, pulling the experts together to help inform your view um, or to help improve things locally. So just really for, for, for women that enjoy that collaborative working, and if you ever fancy it, drop me an email. I'll tell you how I did it. If you weren't to get elected again, what, what would you do? Would you go back into industry? I, I would in terms of, you know, my, my career was always in, in ops. So I ran mail centres for all mail um, or I worked on the underground. I've never been, I've always been in a blue collar operational environment, I suppose. So I would want to go back to something like that. But having seen the public sector, and you know, I didn't really understand that before I got into Parliament. Um, I've always worked in private business. Um, I'd really love to run a hospital. Really? Yeah. And that's what I'd love to do. Wow. Um, the people power, all that emotion and care and dedication, but constant pressure of resource and every day is different and... Um, you know the, the the pressure that our NHS staff are under. Without, oh, it's horrendous yeah. at the moment, by the look of it. Absolutely, but I'd love to try and help. I don't know whether you probably need to know a bit about medicine, don't you? I don't know. Maybe I need to. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Usually, it is somebody senior in medicine, isn't it? Mm. That, that runs or your clinical trust. director, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'd like to do that. So I don't think I'll start with Edinburgh. So that looks a bit ambitious. <laughs> Maybe I'll start somewhere a bit smaller. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'd like to do a job like that. Mm, that's interesting. Harriet Harman um, recently revealed that technology has helped women in politics thanks to a WhatsApp group, enabling all of Labour's female parliamentarians to stay in constant touch. Are you doing the same with female Conservative MPs? Absolutely. You are. <laughs> yes, we do have that. Lots of WhatsApp groups. Um, and it's, um, it's really lovely, actually. I mean, you can tune in and out of it. Um, and you can compare everything from who's growing the biggest courgette this summer to I'm really struggling with this piece of legislation or I've got a difficult email to deal with. Can anybody give me some advice? Um, we do have um, also one of all Conservative MPs generally, not just women. Um, and the tone is totally different. It's quite interesting, <laughs> actually. Um, but no, it's, it's um, yeah, technology does help. On the, on the off side or the opposite side, of course, is you're never away from work because those silly mobile phones mm-hmm. you know that are alarm clocks as well so the first thing you touch in the morning and the last thing you touch before you go to sleep and um, you've got to watch yourself not to be addicted to it but they are powerful tools that can be used for good too how do you unwind when you're not in parliament and you're not thinking or maybe you just never stop but how, how do what do you do to unwind um, well, usually the first thing I do when I get home, uh, late on a Wednesday night or Thursday, my husband knows to leave me alone and I just clean for about 20 minutes. You clean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll grab a cloth or a hoover or I'll just move stuff around. I don't know. I, I'll empty a bin I'll, I'll, I'll just, and then I'm ready to talk. I don't know why I do it, but I just have to 
Um, mostly because he's not as fastidious with work services as I am when I'm not in the house and I've been away for three or four days. But I don't know why. That's therapy. And he knows to leave me alone. If I were you, I'd just have a barrage of cleaners. <laughs> yeah. It's therapy for me, cleaning. I love it. I don't know you why. Do. It's that tidying because you know when the job's finished. Well, if ever you're stuck for anything to clean, I can give you my address. Brilliant. And you can come round there. <laughs> no, gosh, I've probably just blown the whole feminism argument completely by saying I love cleaning. But that's the thing, isn't mm. it? It's not black and white and it's a big mixture of yeah, everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel better when I hoover anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Heidi Allen. No problem. Thank you for interviewing me. That was the MP for Cambridgeshire South, Heidi Allen, speaking to our Linda Ness. And the music was Rita Ora, Anywhere. She was great. I really liked her. You know, when you're interviewing people, you know, and not that I've ever not liked anyone because I, I like most people that I meet, but I did really like her. You know, with politicians, you sort of expect them to be behind a veneer. You kind of expect them to be a bit kind of, you know, it's like the starting every sentence with, well, let me make this very clear. Sort of. And she wasn't like that at all. She was just her. And I think that's the way she is. And I think that's the secret of her success. That's really nice. But then it's it's best to be nat- natural and be yourself mm-hmm. if you can possibly do that in those kind of circumstances. Yeah. I, think I mean, politicians, different. you don't really... Having no. said that, I've met a few and some of them are like that. Mm. Um, but, uh, no, I liked... I liked she was very likable mm. and there was no waffle with her. Mm. You know, um, she just she just answered the question as she saw it. And I thought she was great. She's obviously a very focused woman. Some quite surprising things in there as well, I thought. Mm. I, I was quite surprised um, and, and sounded it, I might add, when uh, when I asked her, you know, if she wasn't reelected, what would she what would she want to do? And yes. she said, run a hospital. I know. That was fascinating. And particularly the reasons that she gave for that, Mm. that she was keen to be sort of in charge of a team which was really dedicated and passionate about what they were doing. Yeah. I thought that was amazing. Yes. And I think that actually very much sums up the kind of person that she is. I think she probably does look for passion in people Mm. when she's working with them. But yeah, I thought thought she was really good. I loved the bit at the end when she said (laughs) about cleaning. I was just so incredible. Because I hate cleaning, you know, I cannot think of anything worse. But I kind of know what she means because yeah. once you get into it, you know, it does. I'm one of these people who either just don't do it at all, but when I do do it, I go to town and I absolutely strip the place down. And you know, as I say, I I liked her a lot. Yeah, I, I can imagine her mowing the carpet, mowing the carpet. Yes. Well, she said you liked the Hoover, so yeah. <laughs> So when I was doing my uh, research before I spoke to Carly Millard, I found some interesting stats on the Federation of Master Builders website and they asked female homeowners if they've ever carried out a range of domestic uh, duties, you know, DIY stuff around the house. Apparently, 80% have painted a room. So have you painted a room, Bobby? I have. I've definitely painted a room. In fact, I've painted more than one room. I painted a room as well. Not terribly well. Disastrous, really. But I have painted a room. 65%, they say, have put together flat pack furniture. I must confess I haven't done that one. But I do feel confident that I could. We're, we're not really into flat pack. We're not sort of a flat pack family, so... Yeah, I'm not sure about the flat pack thing. I think I did try it once with someone else. But I think there was a lot of bad language involved in the flat pack. <laughs> 
<laughs> my daughter's very good at flat pants. She puts together. Lots I thought you were going to say she's very good at bad language. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, she's she's very proper. <laughs> you had so much to say. Feels good, feels right. Let's do this our own way. Fifty-eight percent have unblocked a sink. Oh, yes. Now, I've done that. And not just with the old plunger either. I've had one of those flexible line things that if you push down, it goes all round the S-bend and what have you. They're fun. It's great fun, that is. I've never used one of those. So what are they like? They're, they're, they're curly things, are they? Yeah, they're they're a bit like the old-fashioned curtain rail things do you remember those old plastic curtain rails that you used to throw them it's just like that you push them down and it goes around you wriggle it about and it releases the and it unblocks okay i have poured stuff down sinks and things like that but that's all i've ever done oh that's cheating that's a bottle to get rid of it <laughs> it works though <laughs> oh yeah i tell you what i have done though i have actually rodded drains outside that's great fun you know you have a rod a bit like um the sweeps used to sweep the the chimneys and and you twist all the rods together and it gets longer and longer and you you push it down and down and down and then all of a sudden when it gets hits the blockage it just goes <laughs> And it all disappears. It's absolutely amazing. And that smelled nice, did it? Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I remember once a house I lived in in London had a block drain. There was a lot of people lived in the area. <laughs> and it had a block drain. And they came along to clear it. And the smell, you, it was actually clinging to your clothes. It was horrible. We've got nothing to lose and no one's in our way. If they could see. Forty-four percent have unblocked a toilet. Must confess, I don't think I've really tried that one, but I suppose it might come under the heading of the unblocking the outside drains. Yeah. I think it comes under the heading of that's what husbands are for. Over a quarter have cleared the guttering. Now that is exceptional. I have never gone that far. No, no, me neither, no. That involves going up a ladder with a bucket and probably a garden trowel in order to dig out whatever guns you find up there. But it's an interesting little site, this, because it says uh, the research shows that any lingering gender stereotypes regarding domestic life are totally outdated. Not only do women lead on decisions regarding the style and scope of building projects, they also get stuck in themselves when hiring a builder isn't necessary. In 21st century Britain, it says here, you're uh, just as likely to find a woman up a ladder clearing out the guttering or battling with flat pack furniture as you might be likely to find her performing some of the more traditional domestic chores. And I think this is really on a more serious note. It's about actually wanting women to go into those lines, mm-hmm. you know, to take up building or why take not? up plumbing, all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And why not? Um, I don't know that I could build a wall... I think well, that, if you were trained to do it, you see, and I mean, you do get training in brick, brickying. I, I think I'd have to have a pair of gloves to do that. We'd need a pattern, wouldn't we? Oh, definitely. Close your eyes and come with me. 
right, well, the royal wedding. And this is, this is just an ongoing story, isn't it? I've uh, I actually heard something quite funny. Apparently there's, there's a pub somewhere that has a swear box set up. And if anyone mentions the words wedding and royal together, they've got to put money in the swear box. <laughs> It's probably a good idea. I think we're all getting a little bit fed up with it now. And it's not our wedding, but I think people just like following it, don't they? So, now it's not her first wedding, of course. Um, Did you not know that she'd been married before? I I must confess I didn't. Uh Oh, Yeah, she's divorced. Oh, I didn't realise. So a divorced American, ring any bells? So I'm kind of assuming that she's not going to be wearing a big white meringue. Well, I mean, convention is a bit different these days. I mean, there's been an awful lot of conjecture about who is going to be designing it. And there were sort of three on the short list of who was going to be doing that. But yeah, well, maybe she's going to have a meringue. Who can say? I'm amazed seeing on the news that people have been queuing and setting up little camps all the way along the parade in Windsor. They've been doing that since Wednesday. Since Wednesday, goodness me. And they, they've got little seats and they're covered in their Union Jacks. And in the middle of the Union Jack are the two faces, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all spread all the way along the, the railings, already waiting. Would you do that, Bobby? No, never. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd even want to go along on the day, to be quite honest, because it's just going to be a big squash of people. You'll see far more watching it on the telly. I guess you don't get the atmosphere, but still, you know. No, you won't get the atmosphere. That's very true. And and there is an electric atmosphere, quite definitely, at these royal things. I was intrigued to see that they're not going to have a traditional sit-down. It's going to be a buffet. Really? So there's no wedding breakfast? Well, apparently not. They're going to have bowls of things. I saw somebody saying, like, bowls of ravioli and things like that. Ravioli. Thank you, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, they have said that they don't want any wedding presents, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. They've started a fund, haven't they, so that they can give the money for wedding presents to seven charities. One of which... It's a local charity in Cambridgeshire, isn't it, Bobby? Yes, it is, yes. Scotty's Little Soldiers, which is a super little charity, but it is a nationwide one, and not just nationwide. It's actually worldwide, but for British forces, and it's really for the children of forces personnel who have died so it's for bereaved children which is absolutely super I I just love that idea some of the other charities are something called street games I've not come across that one and how about this one surfers against sewage (laughs) well you would be against sewage if you were a surfer imagine going in amongst all that stuff they must have sat down with a huge list and spent ages sifting it down to the ones that they thought were worthy enough to get this money. Well, I 
I see that Madame Tussauds have unveiled the royal wedding. They've got a picture of Harry and Meghan in Madame Tussauds. I've got a picture in front of me and uh, they certainly look incredibly lifelike. Uh, I think that, that Harry does. I'm not quite so sure about Meghan. I was looking at that photograph earlier, actually, and thinking she looks like something out of Thunderbirds. That's true. <laughs> she does. <laughs> This is 21st Century Women. Kira Gibson is a 19-year-old student who has asthma. And she has had some frightening experiences with the illness, which sadly can be life-threatening. Kira thinks that asthmatics shouldn't have to pay prescription charges for their inhalers, as they are essential in keeping them alive. Louise Wilson asked her more about her campaign. now is Kira Gibson and she's come to tell me about a new campaign she's launching to tackle the high cost of asthma inhalers. Let's start then with what you aim to do with the campaign and what you're actually doing to bring it to the public's attention. Basically the whole idea of the campaign is to get the cost of asthma inhalers on the NHS. I mean ultimately it saves lives. It completely can bring down the death toll of asthmatics and there are so many people that I know that have literally, they choose to buy food over buy their inhalers. So, so what what cost are we looking at at the moment um, then? At this particular moment, it's £8.60 per item on the prescription. And for an asthmatic, you have at the very least two inhalers a month. And you can possibly have some tablets at night to help you sleep, which I'm on, they're called Bontelucast. And if you're having a particular bad bout you can end up with more inhalers and with steroids as well which adding it up it's cheaper to get a prepayment certificate which i think costs 29 pound 10 a month i'm not 100 percent on that but the prescription cost is actually going up to 8 pound 80 so what would you like to see it come down to or even is your preferred option to have it free i guess yeah i i prefer to have a little option saying sort of oh i'm asthmatic on the back of the prescription paper or even for you to for the asthmatics be given some kind of card to say hey i'm asthmatic i have free prescriptions diabetics get free prescriptions and they that's not necessarily a life-threatening illness such as asthma is i guess immediately speaking i mean it is it is life-threatening but it is it's sort of less immediate yeah it it can be in my experience my grandfather is diabetic and my mum's just been told she is possibly diabetic so when it comes to that i know kind of roughly where that Mm. is and providing they take the medication and it's possibly one maybe two meds every month or so and sort of for an asthmatic it's at the very least two meds a month possibly going up to four or five medications a month and that's quite costly and people are dying left right and center from it i guess it's very difficult though for the nhs wouldn't you say that there are so many things that they could spend their money on so many different illnesses the argument is well why is asthma more important than say something else i mean to be honest when it comes to other people's sort of like saying well what makes this illness way more life-threatening than any other ones is the fact that when it comes to sort of the facts and figures Scotland get their free prescriptions and according to the Asthma UK website can't remember the exact um, digits but 
Scotland has about sort of 100 people dying sort of in 2016, whereas England and Wales had over a 1,000 from asthmatics. And when it comes to sort of dealing with the government and trying to do it, if a cost of two inhalers a month for people is going to cost more than hospital trips, ambulance visits, possibly air ambulance, depending on sort of how severe the asthma attack is, it's ultimately going to cost so much less and it's going to cost the NHS less to fund all of these trips, these stays in To hospital. treat it at the starting point rather yeah. than trying to solve the problem afterwards. Yeah, after, yeah. Um, because if you have people sort of like, you get hospitalised and at that point, if they have been hospitalised because they can't afford their inhalers, you're then stuck with the decision of, well, we're going to try and help you, but this is A, costing the NHS more money and B, they could quite honestly die from choosing otherwise and I guess it's quite a timely uh, thing to bring up because of the recent case with the five-year-old girl as well who died yeah I mean to be perfectly honest when it comes to sort of case studies of all of this I've got so many coming out of my ears I mean I've been poorly treated because of my asthma before so Um, is that why you're passionate about it because you yourself are a sufferer from asthma yeah um hugely when I kind of turned 16 and we've got the 16, 17, 18, um, you get free prescriptions if you're still on full-time education. My mum mentioned to me, when you hit 18 and you're out of sixth form, you will have to pay for your inhalers. And I'm like, hang on a second. Why have I got to pay to be able to live and to breathe, whereas sort of other people don't? I mean, it's a life-threatening illness. It's one that I struggle very badly with. Mm. So it's not exactly something that I would say is a minor thing. And honestly, I've had so many bad experiences of people judging me because I can't breathe, especially within schools, which is kind of what I want to do next. Right. So the campaign itself, then, what what are you doing? As of this moment, I have a petition going, which at this particular moment has 4,906 signatures. But I also have my Facebook page, which I have also set up. In the last two days, I have had nearly 100 people go and like this page to do with where I post updates more than I do on the petition. So you you mentioned college, actually, because you are still very young. You're only 19 years old and you're studying at college. And and actually, we were talking outside in the green room and um, you were saying you're you're studying journalism, actually, at the moment. So are you finding that's actually helping you um, to kind of get this thing going? Yeah, it's actually my experience um, that I've learned over the last two years being a journalism student... I've actually sat there and I've looked at what I'm doing and I've asked my teachers for advice saying, right, okay, what next step do I do? And I'm in contact with journalists daily now outside of my college and within my college because all all of my teachers are all still working in the industry. Um, They put me in contact with the Peterborough Telegraph and I got an article written on there about it and they have been so supportive with everything that I've been doing. But it must be quite difficult trying to balance this up with your college work, though, or is, or are you finding it's actually kind of helping both sides? It is hard, I will admit it, trying to run a campaign to essentially save lives and get into university and get the career that I want to do. It's hard, but at the same time, they're both helping each other and... I really quite like sitting there in my class and my teacher saying, we've got 
this exam coming up and sort of this is the subject that we're doing and even for one of my assignments we're supposed to do it on a on a media campaign and so so this is it yeah yeah. pretty much this is the media campaign I'm using I, I, I said to my teacher I was like can I use this since I made the plan a few months back uh, I'm following this plan and it's actually a media campaign now and it's actually been spearheaded and we're getting somewhere. And she's like, yeah, of course you yeah. can. This is the campaign and it's actually coming in quite handy to get me into university. But it started off, you know, just a sort of a, a fleeting thought, didn't it really? You... Yeah, it was something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. So you already had the idea, but it was just a bit of a whim when you started it, though. Yeah, pretty much. I actually started it at eleven o'clock at night. I'd made the plan in one of my in one of my lessons for one of my uh, one of my assignments, and sort of like I'd done this one. I was like, actually, I've been talking about this. So I don't really want to pay for my inhalers. I don't. I don't think it's fair that we have to pay for, to breathe. I want to do this and we'd been thinking about it for a couple of years and sort of about half an eleven at night I was like I need to do something and I literally I followed my plan and I created the petition on change.org and over the last six months I've got so much support and honestly I had no idea at that moment when I woke up the next morning my mum came in into my bedroom and she was like what do we do when it hits 100 singlishes I was like I'm not entirely sure why she's like because we've got like 106 and I was like all my life within 12 hours I had a whole... you already got enough yeah attention. Yeah, I I'd got so much attention within 12 hours mm. and it was absolutely astonishing to kind of know that this is what I'm gonna be that doing must now. have felt really good as well actually from from your point of view to think actually this is something that means something to other people as well yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've actually got asthma nurses and sort of resp- respiratory nurses and people commenting on the actual petition itself saying how such a good idea it is. I mean, my asthma nurse, I mentioned it to her and she was like, actually, I think this is a really good idea. They, Most of my doctor's surgery have signed it. My teachers have signed it and sort of keep supporting me. And it is, it's absolutely astonishing to see how much support and how much this actually means to so many people, mm. to hear so many people about how they've lost family members, how sort of like it'll be a sister or a friend, or even they've been in the position where they've nearly lost their life to this illness because they've had to choose to eat or pay their rent over buying an inhaler. Um, and that is it's, it's essentially just buying something like you go to a shop, you buy food. If you're in a situation where you don't have enough money, um, you literally have to pick and choose what are your priorities. Would you rather breathe or would you rather eat? Because either way, you're at risk from dying because you can die from starvation. You can die from not being able to breathe. So it is essentially a big... It's a big deal, isn't yeah, it? So, so the ideal outcome then for this is obviously at least to reduce the cost, if not to get it free. Yeah. So that's the ideal outcome for that. But beyond this particular issue, is there anything else that you want to see happen? Yeah, um, yeah, there is, definitely. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> One of the things that I'm wanting to do alongside this is actually get the a- awareness of asthma completely, especially in schools. I mean, I have had not one, but two quite nasty experiences within my secondary school of which they didn't pay attention to my asthma. I mean, the first one, I was in year seven and I was slung out in the corridor, coughing my guts up. I had finished my drink, trying to moisten my throat, so I stopped coughing. I had taken my blue inhaler and it just wasn't working. It was to the point 
where I was nearly hospitalised because of it and my teacher just sat me outside the classroom for an hour because I was disturbing the class. Mm. They sent me to the medical room, they sent me in there for an hour and then rang my mum 20 minutes before school and was like, oh yeah, she's having an asthma attack. I'd been having this asthma attack for t- over two hours. And sort of about a week later it came out in the news that this child had died the same treatment that I had and I was extremely lucky to actually get out of that alive. So obviously my mum went mental at the school because they didn't pay attention, they didn't know how serious asthma was. Um, and I so said, there's a huge misunderstanding then about yeah. what asthma is. I guess a lot of people may treat it as just like, oh, they've got a bit of a, a, a cough, you know, but it's actually, it's not being able to catch your breath. Yeah, it really? yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I, I was put, I was so close to being put on nebulizer at that point and... So obviously, again, it's not exactly something that's well-known. I mean, I've spoke to other students um, that have left school who've got asthma, and they've had the same treatment in different schools around Fenland and around Cambridgeshire. Well, thank you very much for coming in, and uh, I, well, I hope it goes viral, so to (laughs) speak, and and gets the attention that it really, really needs. Thank you so much, Kira. It's good to speak to you. That was Louise Wilson speaking to Kira Gibson, who is running a campaign to make inhalers free for diabetics. The music was Massive Attack, Paradise Circus. Over 5,000 people have signed Kira's petition. And if you want to add your signature to the campaign, you can find it on change.org by searching for the words Make Asthma Inhalers Free. I think somebody at 19 starting a campaign like that you've got to take your hat off to her really haven't you that's very good yes 19 is a very tender age although it doesn't feel like it when you're 19 well most 19 year olds are busy you know out with her friends and out clubbing so i think it's Absolutely. it says a lot for her that that yes. she's got this um that she actually wants to make things happen so she's yes. obviously quite a political animal yes yeah it might be worth watching her you never know where she's going to aspire to and this interview was taken a few weeks ago actually and she mentioned that prescription prices per item were eight pounds 60 it's probably worth mentioning that they have gone up in the meantime to eight pounds 80 so not very cheap that's a lot of money it but is particularly if you've got more than one item well exactly exactly and she obviously has quite a few Well, that's all we have time for in this edition of 21st Century Women. Our huge thanks go to MP Heidi Allen, Carly Millard, Kira Gibson and our contributor Louise Wilson. If you're listening to HCR 104 FM, next up is The Country Show with John and Jackie Manders. And on Cambridge 105, you can find out what's going on in the area this summer Saturday. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in June. Until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones. Goodbye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. Jack and change Jack